Do text messages pop up warning you that your streaming account has a billing issue or there is an unpaid customs charge on a package? Those are just a couple of the latest scams being used by criminals to fleece you. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs with a story from inside the crime scene tape where people bleed money. Lies designed to cheat or break your heart thrive on the internet. Truth is in short supply. In this episode of True Crime Reporter, I want to arm you with some tools to protect yourself from the flood of falsehoods. Fellow reporter Dr. Seema Yasmin is here to help you find the truth and all the noise. Dr. Yasmin is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and the author of What the Fact. Seaman, what is the state of truth in the world today? Depending on who you ask, they would say we live in a post-truth world where we make decisions based on emotion and where increasingly we have a population that is not media literate, sadly, and are not trained in the skills of critical thinking and are therefore much easier to manipulate, much easier to deceive, because many of us find it difficult to separate fact from fiction, but think that we are logical, think that we are rational, think that, oh, I would never fall for false information. I couldn't be duped. And in the world that we cover in this podcast, I'm seeing people fall for every imaginable scheme online, down to these days text messages saying that we need to contact you about your Amazon account or your Netflix account, which is all a scheme to really get you to give personal information. Starting there, how would you advise people to approach these kinds of messages to figure out what's true and what's false? One really healthy way to start is to have this humility and this open-mindedness that all of us, no matter how savvy we think we are, no matter how many degrees we have, all of us can be duped. I have been studying misinformation and disinformation and how they spread and why it is that humans believe the things that we believe for over a decade. And one of my favorite things is when myself and other disinformation scholars have phone calls, have Zoom meetings, sometimes one of my colleagues will start by saying, Hey, everyone, let's just quickly check in. How about we all just throw out one thing we've all fallen for recently that turned out to be not true. And it's funny and it's humbling and it's a little embarrassing, but it's so healthy to do that and to recognize that even those of us who study this stuff and we're called world experts in this stuff, even we can fall for things that are false. So I really recommend that as a starting point, that humility, that open-mindedness, that understanding that each of us can be susceptible and the best scammers out there will study us and know what our susceptibilities are. For the benefit of our audience, explain the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Great question. They often get lumped together and used interchangeably, but there are different types of false information. Misinformation is false information that's shared by someone who probably doesn't know that what they're saying isn't true, and they're certainly not sharing it with you in any way to hurt you. So an example could be, if we think about the early days of the COVID outbreak, 
if a, a neighbor, a well-meaning neighbor said to you, hey, um, have you heard there's this new virus going around? Well, apparently if you gargle with salt water, you just won't get it. Now that's not true, but assuming the neighbor doesn't realize that's not true and isn't trying to hurt you, we call that misinformation. And that is different from disinformation. Disinformation, it's still false information, but it's shared by someone who knows they are telling a lie and it's shared with the intention of causing harm. So many examples of this, but one that just popped into my mind right now was, do you remember back in 2014, 2015, when the biggest outbreak of Ebola in history was spreading in West Africa? There was lots of panic, right, all around the world. And people who wanted to spread disinformation and cause chaos knew that this was a point of panic and a point of anxiety. And one thing that one of these disinformation groups did was they hacked the Yahoo News account's Twitter account. And they also created a fake CNN.com webpage that looked like the real thing. And on both of those accounts, they shared this lie that Ebola was spreading through Atlanta and it was making people sick. And that was a known lie. They knew that they were telling a lie and they were doing it purposefully so that in Atlanta, people would panic. They'd think, oh my gosh, do I have a fever? Do I need to go to the ER? Do I need to go to urgent care? And that kind of disinformation can cripple a healthcare system, for example. So those are two examples and two of the ways you can differentiate between misinformation and disinformation. And is there a a checklist you would suggest somebody goes through when they get something like this as a text about their their bank account or their Amazon account uh, to to mentally walk through to determine no this this is a this is a fraud this is not true. One thing before I get into kind of like a checklist of like check the source and check the mm-hmm. veracity and check what date and time a particular image was uploaded, for example, is just check in with yourself. Did the thing that you just read kind of trigger you? Did it cause some kind of emotional reaction? And the reason I say this is because disinformation especially is engineered to kind of push your buttons. Because we as humans, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist. I like to think I'm so rational and logical. And I hope in many cases I am, but we're social animals. You know, we're human beings who have emotions and often will be led by our emotions. And you can just read up on how social media has taken advantage of this. They know that when our buttons are pushed, we're more likely to retweet a thing. A message is more likely to go viral. So first and foremost, just have that kind of little check-in with yourself. Like, oh, did I just read something that made me instantly want to forward it to my WhatsApp group? Did I just read something that instantly made me irritated and angry? That's often a warning sign that what you're reading was engineered to manipulate your emotions and make that message go viral. Then, of course, you want to do all the typical things like, Where did this information really come from? Is the source that's spreading it the only source? And if so, that can be a bit weird. Why aren't other news sources, for example, reporting that same news? So do some digging on the source. We often assume that false information comes in the form of text, but so often it's video and it's photo content that's used to manipulate and deceive us. And there are some really good tools online where you can plug that image in and do a reverse image search. And for example, see that this 
horrible video that looks like a mass grave that someone is saying is full of the bodies of people who were killed because they got the COVID vaccine. Then you do a reverse image or reverse video search and find out the video is like six years old before we even knew what COVID was. And it was caused by a tsunami somewhere, for example. So that's another way to check if what you're seeing is accurate or if someone is spreading it to push their own agenda. Well, in your book, which is titled What the Fact, and I recommend it to my listeners that that want to figure out, try to ascertain what is the truth when they see stuff online or hear it. You talk about inductive reasoning and deductive thinking. Is this what you should apply at this moment as you're trying to sort out the truth? Yes. And in a nutshell, what I am trying to get people to do is check their emotions and then take that minute, that, you know, a few seconds to do some critical thinking. And, you know, people often ask me, like, you do research on this and it's really high level. How did you end up writing a book about this stuff for young people? But it's because one, young people are super smart and we need to teach these skills early on. But two, so much of the education system is not focused on teaching these skills of critical thinking, of different types of reasoning. And so that's why I think it's never too late to do that. And it's certainly never too late to, as I always say, just remember that we each have biases and we each like to think we're rational, but we will often make decisions based on emotion. Will you explain for the listeners the difference between inductive reasoning and deductive thinking? Oh, sure. Do you mind if I reach for my books? I want to find the nice way that I condensed it. In oh, there. sure. Sure. I had fun thinking about how to do this in a way that made it like super accessible and not like high level philosophy. So I enjoyed writing about sheep, for example, and all the different ways that we take in information. And just based off the amount of information that we can or cannot take in, we make big decisions and big assumptions based on that. Sure. And you use the example, uh, will the sun come up tomorrow? Yes. I love that example. So I'll read a little bit. Hopefully it's not too long, but I think it kind of sets the scene for this. So the sunrise problem has been a source of investigation for centuries since mathematicians, statisticians, and scholars tried to calculate not only if the sun would rise every day, but how sure they could be in this belief. So you have this sunrise problem that says, okay, well, the sun rose today, but does that mean it will rise tomorrow? And just because it rose today, can you 100% say that that's the case? There are two main kinds of thinking we use to make sense of the world, inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. Inductive goes like this. For example, say that you are telling yourself, I've only ever seen white sheep in my life. Therefore, all sheep must be white. So then the claim is the sheep is white. Then you say, oh, look, I saw another sheep. That one's also white. And then you're like, I'm going to make the claim that all sheep are white. That's the conclusion that I'm reaching. But there's a different kind of reasoning that's called deductive. And it goes like this. You say, Robert is a vegan. Vegans don't eat meat. Therefore, I come to the conclusion that Robert doesn't eat meat. That's deductive reasoning. And in deductive reasoning, that claim that you're making that Robert doesn't eat meat is backed up by the claims that he's saying he's vegan, vegans don't eat meat, 
Therefore, you can come to that conclusion via deductive reasoning. Basically, what I'm saying is deductive reasoning leads to a logical logical conclusion. And if you compare that with inductive reasoning, where you said one sheep was white, then the thousandth sheep must be white, and you're using that to support a conclusion that all sheep are white, actually, your claims don't logically back up that conclusion. And my point here is not for us like always, every time we see something to kind of like have to think about it in this terms, but just understand that there is a level of certainty and a level of uncertainty. So where inductive reasoning leads to conclusions that are sometimes right and sometimes wrong, deductive reasoning, you're making a conclusion that is backed up by the claims. What are the challenges we're going to face? And again, trying to determine, is this real? Is it true with the growth now of artificial intelligence? Uh, The Congress just recently took this up in hearings with the the leader of ChatGPT. And we truly are, uh, you already see it to some extent, we're going to have synthetic beings online. Oh, we've seen this. It's not really brand new. We've seen quite good deep fakes. Sometimes not such good quality, but they're getting better and better. And also in my world of misinformation and disinformation research, we've been using AI and things like ChatGPT to generate content that we then test whether people think it's true or think it's false, for example. So I think to me, it makes it even more urgent that we start at a really young age in teaching young people the tools of media literacy, digital literacy, and critical thinking, because we won't always be able to control for the amount of information that's out there, the amount of overwhelming information that we're exposed to. But one thing you can do is develop those skills yourself and build up what some of us call your mental immunity to bullshit. And I say mental immunity um, kind of in quotation marks because we're not talking about the actual immune system that protects us from infection, but we're using that immune system as an analogy that you want to create an immune system in quotes for your thinking, for your reasoning. And you want that immune system to be porous to some extent. You know, it's really easy to read my book and hear what I'm saying and be like, I'm just going to be skeptical of everything. I won't trust anyone. Don't believe anything you see or hear. But that's not a good way to live life either. That's pretty miserable. To have a, a good life, to have a good existence as a human, you need to be able to let people in. You need to be able to let new ideas in. So when I talk about mental immunity, we're really talking about this balance between letting in ideas but having the skills and the right level of skepticism to weed out the stuff that's BS. All right, we're going to pause for a moment for a message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. We're talking with Seema Yasmin, the author of what the fact, really how to sort out truth from misinformation and disinformation. Seema, I want to talk to you about how you could apply this just in personal relationships, one-on-one, because with us, a true crime podcast, you know, we find relationships turning violent uh, because of uh, 
one party has not been able to ascertain the truth of what the other one has been telling them and they're taken advantage of. I actually include a script for this in the book as an example of how to have a conversation about a topic that's contentious and heated and polarizing in a way that doesn't just blow up the conversation. I think we've all been there, sadly. It's so frustrating. You're trying to get through to someone. They're trying to get through to you. You have opposing beliefs about a thing and you're just butting heads and no one's getting through to the other person. And I think we fall into this trap of thinking, well, that's just how things are sometimes. Things get so heated and you can't get through to someone. But actually, there's a whole field of research on how to have what's called productive conflict or good conflict, which sounds wild because conflict to many of us just sounds negative, but it does not have to be that way. So when I was writing What the Fact and I was writing how to build up your mental immunity and how to have the right level of skepticism, not too much and not too little, I wasn't thinking I'm going to write a whole chapter about how to disagree with people and how to have good conflict. But as I was writing the book, I'm like, there's no way I can write this book without that chapter because we as humans don't live in isolation. We have relationships, we have friendships, we have family members, parents even who don't agree with our decisions or don't believe climate change is real. Like you could pick gun control, racism, like so many different, like COVID vaccines, right? So many different topics. So there is a method to this. And I have a scenario in the book where there's a teenager who's worried about going to school because there's been another mass shooting, but she doesn't want to talk to her mom about it because her mom is opposed to gun control. And so they have these really different perspectives. One of the key things, and this is going to sound maybe a bit weird, and you and I do say in the book, you have to read the room, figure out what's safe, what's unsafe. It's not like this is a recipe you follow exactly the same way every time, right? Read the room, check what's safe. But one of the things that can be really important to do is instead of going into the conversation with, well, this is my point of view and these are the facts I want to get across and I need to tell you you're wrong, even though it's so tempting to do that, that often is like pouring kerosene onto a fire. So one of the things you can try to do, and again, each situation needs to be assessed for safety and things like that. But one of the things that you can start to do that will often disarm a person, and if there's BS involved, it will start to bring out the BS, is start by asking them questions, not by telling them stuff, not by telling them they're wrong, not by telling them, but I've seen the studies and I have the data. But when they say a thing, ask them questions about it, open-ended questions. And that does a couple of things. One, it makes them think, oh, okay, she's listening to me. And two, it opens them up to give you more information as to why they're saying what they're saying and how they came to hold that belief. So that can really open the door and change the tone of the conversation And it can be a really helpful first step. You know, I remember back when I was in college, my father was involved in law enforcement, my late father, and we were with a Texas Ranger and it was on Christmas Eve. And the police scanner, this was a rural area, was just buzzing with calls to homes where there were fights going on, domestic problems. And I was like, my God, it's Christmas Eve. What what's wrong here? And the ranger looked over and said, well, you know, people haven't seen each other in uh, months and 
all of these old grievances and problems are, are coming to light. So your advice, you somehow you've got to read the room. You do. And the reason I say that is because not every argument's the same, right? I'm a Muslim woman. I have brown skin. I'm American, but I'm not originally from America. I might very likely treat a conversation different if someone is saying to me, climate change isn't real versus them saying to me, I think all Muslims are terrorists, right? There might be a higher chance of me being attacked perhaps in one of those situations versus the other. Not every argument is my argument to argue in that particular time. So definitely read the room, but then please be aware that there are tools and methods and strategies that have been researched that guide us to having effective conflict, not just the kind of conflict that most of us grew up with, was, which is where it just turns into a full-blown fight. Well, as a uh, 30-year veteran reporter, I have to ask you about the future of journalism. You talk about it in the book. And, you know, we're living in a time where there, there are people on YouTube, influencers that are believe more than uh, maybe trained journalists and others. Where do you see journalism as going in the role? What a time to ask me that question when there's just been like this string of layoffs. And even though it's not journalism per se, we have the writer's strike in Hollywood, which, you know, they're fighting for some of the same things that all kinds of writers, journalists included, are fighting for. I see, if anything, an even more urgent need for robust journalism and the kind of journalism that's done by journalists who really represent the communities that they're reporting on, that's more urgent than ever. At the same time, of course, we're seeing diminishing trust in journalism. And I think what happens is often many of us, well-meaning journalists who understand the power of a free press and know that the history of a free press includes journalists who have taken down bad leaders and taken down scandalous presidents even, we just end up kind of like shouting at people a little bit like, just subscribe to your local newspaper. It's not true that we're not the enemy of the, you know, the people, whatever. But it takes more than that to build trust. And it gets complicated. I'm a journalist, but I come from communities that are often either underrepresented in the media or often misrepresented in really horrible, biased ways, right? That has an impact then. And if I'm just saying to my family, you should trust journalists, you should read up here about COVID vaccines. It's hard to do that when you're talking to populations that feel like the press has done them bad in the past. And the other thing that we have been doing is kind of not pulling back that curtain enough to show how journalism is done. And so then it looks like there's a them and us divide between the public and between journalists. And really, we are there to hold the powerful to account so that people know how their tax dollars are being spent, for example. It's just a really basic thing. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book, What the Fact. I wanted young people to understand the process of how journalism is made. Who decides what gets to be on the front page? Who decides what is a story and what isn't? So I worry about the state of journalism. I hope that the current state will lead to a shakeup in which lots of positive changes happen and we don't just try and repeat more of the same. More of the same will lead to more failure, I worry. And so I want 
I want that to be a paradigm shift in in how we think about journalism and how we think about things like objectivity, for example. And just just yesterday, I saw that one of the senior executives for CNN's parent company was talking about both sides journalism. We're going to make sure CNN covers both sides of every issue, but that's a trap. There's many sides to a story, and sometimes the both sides of something is giving an equal voice an equal platform to those who are spreading misinformation and disinformation. So we need a lot more careful thinking about what the future of journalism will look like. I'd li- actually love to hear your take on this too, as a, a 30-year veteran. My concern is that cable news is not news, it's opinion, it's talk. And that really is becoming part of main news channels. For I was in television, and money is not spent on digging anymore. And I'll give you an example. 30 years ago, I exposed a huge corruption uh, going on in the Texas parole and prison system. And there was, a, there was a parole board chairman and his cronies selling paroles, letting serial killers out of prison for money and wow. not much money. And I've since recently, we've, we've done a television documentary about it called Freed to Kill. But that was a very uh, difficult story to do. It took a long time, lots of research, and these were all high-profile political figures adored in some circles, and so there was a lot of pushback of, well, you're wrong. These are good people. And I don't know that any local news organizations or chains of stations would do that these days. That's disturbing because we need those. Yeah. As another form of checks and balances. But you're reminding me that this is one of the reasons why it's really important to know the differences between misinformation and disinformation and to use our words carefully. Because that term, fake news, I tell people try and stay away from it if you can, because it's kind of been used as a word bomb against journalists by people in power to shut us up, to take away our funding, to point at us at rallies and say fake news, fake news, and just shut down the conversation as opposed to bringing awareness to people that look what journalism can do. It can ring the bell and it can expose the kinds of scandals that lead to people being murdered and not being safeguarded as they should be. I agree. I'm uh, concerned about the direction of things. I know that if you're not watching City Hall and you're not watching the state legislature, somebody is stealing. It's the nature of people. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's been shown so many times. You need those dogged, determined local newspaper journalists who will sit through hours and hours of different kinds of committees and different kinds of hearings with a really close ear and and do the kind of digging that protects us. And uh, what I've got to emphasize, that digging is expensive. And so one of the things I saw going on at the networks before I left was that they were always after gimmicks to get ratings. I, I, it, it's similar to clickbait today online. And, you know, you're not spending your time on where I think it really counts is that, you know, how, how are they spending our tax dollars? What are our children getting in school? What are the safety standards for the vehicles on the road? These things that are directly 
impact people's lives. Yes, and good journalism is expensive. It is an investment. But let me tell you, it's expensive to not do that kind of journalism. It costs the ordinary person when that kind of journalism is not done. One of the things that I study is news deserts across the country. And these are areas that have lost their local newspaper, for example. And what we've seen over and over again is when a town loses its local newspaper, taxes go up an average of $85 per person each year because measures of corruption in the local government worsen and government efficiency gets lowered. And actually, the the town or that city that lost its local newspaper is seen as a worse investment from those banks or those companies that cities take bonds against to make investments in improving the roads or in building better hospitals. They get charged more for taking out those loans, not to mention that when you lose your local newspaper, voter turnout decreases, fewer people run for office when there's an open position. It's really bad for polarization and social cohesion and for your tax bill to not have good local journalists. Well, Simi Yasmin, I want to thank you for coming in here with some advice about how to sort out the truth in an, in an age that we're just we're bombarded, and especially with fraud. Again, for our listeners, the book is What the Fact. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. In closing, here's my reporter's recap and reflections. In a society where trust is eroding, finding the truth can be a challenging task. However, there are several strategies that individuals can employ to navigate the sea of misinformation and disinformation and regain a sense of trust in their interpersonal relationships. First, verify information from multiple reliable sources. Develop critical thinking skills. Check for supporting evidence. And when trying to get to the bottom of the truth in relationships, start with a respectful conversation. You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter Podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our True Crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.